Life Audio. You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast. I'm John Stonge, and I'm glad you're here with us this week. We're currently studying the Gospel of Mark together and learning more about the life, ministry, and miracles of Jesus. We'll jump into today's teaching in just a moment, but first, let's hear a quick word from the sponsors of today's episode. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. This morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, and we're going to pick up at verse 1 of Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read in just a moment down to verse 13, and we're going to be asking the question today, what do you want to be remembered for? Because as we look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, there's a group of people here that are certainly remembered for something, and uh, when you think about the things that they are remembered for, many of the people in this passage aren't remembered for very good things. But for those of us that follow Jesus Christ, there's a question that we ought to to ask, and that's, you know, what do we want to be remembered for? And you can see that uh, play out in a passage like this. And so if you would take your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 7, verse 1 says this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to understand what we're reading. We pray that we would grow in our walk with you. We pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit so that 
we wouldn't be seeking to live life under our power or under our control, but that we would yield ourselves completely over to you. And Father, we know that apart from your Spirit's intervention, we can't fully understand the things that we're reading in a passage like this. So we pray that your Spirit would speak to our minds and our hearts, help us to understand these things. We thank you so much, Lord, that all your Word is pointing to your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, that our trust in your Son would be thorough and would be complete. And we commit this time to you now, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So not long ago, I was teaching a theology class to a group of college students who are close to graduating. So most of them in this particular class are either juniors or seniors. And during the class, I I played a, a brief video that I actually found not too long ago that interviewed 70 people. And the people that were interviewed in this video were ages 5 to 75. So they all got one answer, ages 5 to 75, 70 different people, and they were asked what they wanted to be remembered for. And their answers were all over the map. It's a very interesting video. And when you look, you can also see some patterns with different age groups when you watch the video. But some people expressed a desire to be remembered for being famous. So that was a common theme that I noticed. Some said they wanted to be remembered as good parents. I noticed particularly that was the answer of of those in the video that were in their late 40s and 50s. Um, Several expressed a desire to make the world a better place in some meaningful way. That was a common theme that that we saw with several. And then one person stood out to me, um, and he was a retired math teacher, and he said uh, something a little more specific than many of the others that were interviewed on this video. He, when he was asked the question, what do you want to be remembered for? He commented that if all the students he taught during his career were brought together, there would be enough to fill Madison Square Garden. So you're like, okay. But then he commented something to the effect that he considered this his greatest legacy. Thought that was his greatest leg- legacy. Now, it's no secret that I value learning. I also value teaching. And when I think back over the course of my life, I can, I can say that I sincerely appreciate every teacher that has ever taken the time to educate and, and influence me in healthy ways. But when I heard this man's assessment, when I heard him thinking about his life and thinking about what he wanted to be remembered for, uh, I actually thought that there was something in that that sounded a little sad. His answer troubled me because like many of the other answers, his was just specific about it, but like many of the other ones, he was primarily focused on earthly metrics and earthly measurements, trying to give a number, trying to give a quantity to everything. He gave his answer without an eye toward eternity. And the tone, this was, I think, probably what really tipped me off to some of that. The tone in which he gave his answer actually sounded a little conceited and a little prideful, whereas some of the other answers had a little bit of humility to them. Now, during the time of Christ's earthly ministry, when we think about the passage that we just read together from Mark 7, You have here in the Gospels a variety of things that reveal to us that some of the most conceited and prideful people in that era were actually those that had the responsibility to teach others. And even sadder was the fact that many of these teachers were men who had the role to communicate the Scriptures. Their job was to communicate the Scriptures to other people. That was their role in their culture. That was their role in in society. But even though And this is very unfortunate, even though they knew the details of Scripture rather well, and many of them could quote, we would be so impressed with them as far as their memory, because many of them could quote mega, mega, mega portions 
of Scripture, large chunks of God's Word from memory. They could quote it. But even though that was in their head, in some respect, it was far from their hearts. Their hearts were far from the Lord, and Scripture brings that up in a variety of ways. And one of the things that were shown as Christ interacts with this group of, of Pharisees, they were called, um, one of the things were shown is that they were more motivated by the praise that they would receive from others than the glory that they, that they had the opportunity to give to God. They cared more about the praise other people would give them than the glory or the praise that they could give to their Creator, whose word they were supposed to be teaching and whose word they had committed to memory in many respects. And so you see this play out in, in Mark chapter 7, and I'm going to reread the first few verses for us here because, again, it says, now when the Pharisees, so there's this group of, of religious elite in their culture, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then it says, you have, in, notice in parentheses here, you have Mark giving some context because Mark wrote his gospel here, primarily for a Roman audience. And so many of the people that were in his original audience would not be familiar with this tradition that's being spoken of here. So it's in parentheses, and he starts explaining the kind of tradition that the Pharisees were carrying out. He says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And then it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So this is their question as they're interrogating Jesus and his disciples. And basically what's happening here in this context, you have the the ministry of Jesus gaining notoriety the word of his teaching, and people were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority. And so people were always very surprised when they would hear him teach. They said, wow, you, you teach differently than our other teachers. You teach with authority. They were amazed at that. So word of his teaching starts spreading. But in addition to that, word of the miracles that he's been doing starts getting around. His acts of healing, his acts of actually raising the dead now, his, his ability to exercise demons, all of that The miracles he was doing, it's starting to spread all throughout the region, and the religious leaders of the day felt compelled to investigate and just see what what this guy was up to, what this new rabbi, this Jesus, what he's up to. They wanted to come and observe it for themselves, and in in addition to observing Jesus, they also made a point to assess his disciples. They wanted to figure out, what are these guys doing? Everybody's talking about it. They are drawing huge crowds. We want to know what he's up to. Now, Scripture tells us that one of the things that stood out to them right away is they're trying to make their assessment. So they come in from Jerusalem, they're making this assessment, and they're looking at Christ, and they're looking at His disciples, and it stands out to them the fact that that Christ's disciples didn't seem, by and large, to be following the, the ritual cleansing requirements that the Pharisees followed and kind of insisted that everybody follow. Basically, at the time, what the the religious leaders and other devout Jews would do was they would make a a, a point to carry out a hand-washing ritual before they ate. Now, if you go back into the book of Exodus, in chapter 30 of the book of Exodus, there are references in that chapter that speak about the priests washing their hands and washing their feet as a, uh, like a a ritual that was done before they performed their sacred priestly tasks. 
And so that was something for the priests that they were supposed to do, and that's referenced in the book of Exodus. And so eventually, even though that wasn't something that was just a general public requirement, it was a requirement specifically for the priests, you have the Pharisees looking at this and saying, you know what, we think everybody should do this. But notice that they're not washing their hands and their feet, like Exodus 30 says. They have ceremonies for washing the hands, and then there were apparently ceremonies that they invented for washing arms and and, uh, for washing copper pots and dining couches and all sorts of things. They start adding to this, and they basically, even though Scripture doesn't require people to do this in a general sense, they start requiring, through their expectations, they start requiring everybody to operate in this manner. And if you didn't operate in this manner, they would look down on you as somebody who maybe wasn't very mature or wasn't really devoted to your faith. And so they looked down on others that didn't practice this. Now, again, generally speaking, people were not required by God's Word to do this, but the Pharisees felt otherwise. And the Scripture tells us, and it's not even giving us an exhaustive list here, but it's telling us that they also had other traditions that they expected people to follow, and that was the most important thing to them. They wanted everybody to follow these external traditions and go through the motions of doing all sorts of things that in their mind would be evidence that you are spiritually devout. And so they see Christ's disciples, and they notice that they don't do that. They notice that they don't perform the ceremonial hand-washing that they were expected to do by the Pharisees. And so they start questioning this, and they question in a critical way. They question in a judgmental way, and they bring the matter to Jesus, because basically they're there to try and find something wrong with what's going on. That's their goal. They're not there to learn. They're not there to be taught. They're not there to be amazed by what Christ's doing. They're not there to become his disciples as well. They're just there to find something wrong with this so that they can put a stop to it. This is what's in their mind, because if you live for the praise of men, you get very jealous when somebody else is receiving praise and attention. And Christ was receiving a lot of praise and a lot of attention. And instead of people paying attention to them as being the religious elite, Everyone's starting to pay attention to Jesus and his disciples, and so they're thinking, we've got to stop this because this is going to get out of hand, and we're going to lose our cultural influence if he and his disciples take over. We've got to find something wrong with what they're doing. And so that's what they were there to do. Now, I will tell you, and I hope you look for this as you read through the Gospels on your own, but I will tell you that one of my favorite things to observe in the Gospels, when I'm going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, One of my favorite things to observe when I go through those books is the way in which Jesus speaks to different people. And there's a pattern. He speaks to different people in different ways. When you you think about the people that he was speaking to, um, that Scripture tells us were feeling crushed by their burdens, or lost in sin, or humbled by their circumstances, how did Christ speak to people like that? Scripture shows us that he would speak in hopeful and very compassionate ways. He would use uplifting terms to try and encourage the downtrodden. He'd try and lift them up and encourage them to find the solution for what their hearts were aching for in him. So he would do that over and over when he would speak to the sad, when he would speak to the lonely, when he would speak to the discouraged. But when he spoke to the self-righteous, When he spoke to the self-righteous, the people who were proud, the people who were arrogant, the people who considered themselves better than everybody else, Jesus spoke in a very confrontational way. To those who needed to be lifted up, he lifted them up, but to those who needed to be knocked down a peg, he would confront them. And he would do so 
unashamedly and without reservation, and he would just handle it in the moment. And when you look at what we're told in verses 6 through 8, you have this confrontation. Now imagine Jesus confronting the, the, the big wigs of the time. I mean, have you ever seen, we live in the, this day and age, I, and I, I just, I love this, maybe more than I should love this, but we live in this day and age where, as people who live in the information age, you see videos come across of, of uh, news and uh, all sorts of things. And recently I saw, and I, I won't name names, although I could, but I won't. Uh, I saw a video of um, somebody confronting a political figure. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that was brazen. That was bold. But I liked it because I agreed with the person doing the confronting. And I was like, yeah, that probably needed to be said, but I bet you that person doesn't hear people saying those sorts of things very often. And people of influence or power of any generation, they are not used to people telling them anything other than what they want to hear. So when someone goes out of their way to actually say what really is, sometimes they don't know how to respond to that. And here in this context here, now Jesus is doing this all with view of the fact that he's going to be crucified. And who's the, who are the people that are going to instigate, instigate his crucifixion? The religious leaders. So he knows that part of the task here is to tell them what's up, but he also knows on the other end of this that he is going to be crucified. But in the meantime, he just tells them the truth. And here it tells us in Mark chapter 7, as he confronts these people who are not used to being confronted, it says in verse 6, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That'll win you friends, right? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and now he starts quoting from Isaiah 29. He's summarizing Isaiah 29 here. But he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he said, and I can just imagine the tone in his voice as he's saying this, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's what he said to them as he confronted them. And again, Pharisees, not used to being confronted like this. They're used to being the ones to confront, or right, the ones doing the confronting, not being the ones that are confronted. Most of the places that they would go, they were honored, and they loved being honored. Scripture tells us they would love going different places, and people would make a big deal about them. And even in this situation, they're treating Jesus and his disciples like they need some stamp of approval from them to carry out their ministry, but Jesus made it clear that he wasn't interested in their approval. He didn't care for their approval. He didn't need their approval. He wasn't looking for it. In fact, they needed his approval. But he certainly did not approve of their arrogance or their smug demeanor, and so he told them about it. And here, again, he's summarizing words that we find in Isaiah chapter 29. It's an interesting chapter to read. But here you have Jesus calling the Pharisees hypocrites. They're people who just make a show of their supposed faith. You know, when you look at what's really going on, they didn't have faith at all. They just had outward expressions, right? Their hearts were very, very distant from God. And you and I have met people throughout the course of our lives that fall into that same category. And maybe some of us, if we're really honest, maybe at one point we fell into that category where it was all external things, but deep down inside, we knew how we were really living. We knew what we really believed. And these men, they were quite distant from God, but they were trying to make it look like they were the religious elite, that they cared about all the things that, that uh, God cared about. They kept up a very good public appearance, but their motives were evil. 
Their motives were selfish. They wanted praise, not to give praise. They wanted glory, not to give glory. And instead of leading people toward a closer walk with God, what they would do was they would teach their own unbiblical doctrines, things that were really about keeping score by human standards and not about submitting control of their lives over to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. They just wanted to be the ones calling the shots. They were filled with pride. They wanted to be in charge. The idea, it would have been preposterous to them to think about submitting their lives over to Christ and serving as a disciple of His or being taught anything by Him because they thought they essentially had nothing left that they needed to be taught. And that's a very dangerous spot for any human heart to get to. And so they rejected counsel. They rejected wisdom. They were filled with pride, and they were looking at ways that they could pick Christ apart. And then Jesus goes on to tell us here in Mark chapter 7, verse 9, He said to them further, He says, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, keep in, keep in mind, they're good and mad already at this point, right? He's, he's, already, he's already poked the bear, right? He's already stirred up the hornet's nest. And he, he elaborates here. Can you imagine? Like, he's already said it, and he's like, but in case you're not sure, let me give you even more specific examples to drive my point home. Also, there's a crowd of people around, and people like that really don't like being confronted in front of an audience. So this is one of those things that's going to tick them off. And picture them there in all their fancy garb, looking all smug, and Jesus getting up in their face and saying, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, exclamation point. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Read that to your children later, by the way. Start with the Old Testament. Before you get to the New Testament, just share this with your children. They will appreciate it. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So what he's saying here is, you don't just do like a couple things. There's a lot of things that you do that are just like this, but he starts with one of the most grievous examples. So Jesus here, he gives them more specifics, ways in which he's directly observed them, uh, forsaking the commandments of God, the actual commandments of God, so that they can honor the traditions of men. And again, he says, one of the biggest examples of this is the way in which you fail to honor your fathers and your mothers. You just fail to do it. Now, here's the thing. Honoring our parents is something that we're all still called to do. That's something we're all called to do. And part of the reason the Lord specifically instructs us to do so is because naturally speaking, that can be challenging. You know, when you see stuff like that in Scripture, understand um, why would the Lord bother to put it there if it was something we found easy to do and we're doing anyway? It's the type of thing that that we find in Scripture because it's challenging sometimes. Sometimes it's challenging because maybe our parents don't share our faith, and as a result, maybe they don't make life choices that fit with how we desire to live. So there could be some conflict there. I think it could also be challenging to honor your parents when you're trying to establish your independence as a, as a young adult or as a newly married couple. I think a lot of times that could be very difficult to honor your parents in a context like that. I think it'd also be challenging to honor your parents if they genuinely treated you poorly, which unfortunately happens way more than I wish it did. 
I remember really struggling with this concept at one point, particularly during my late teens and my early adulthood. Now, I love my parents. My mother passed away almost six years ago, which blows my mind. I can't believe it's been almost six years. Uh, my father, he's healthy, he's doing well. They've both been a huge blessing to me and my siblings. But they would admit to this, and I, I can admit it to you, there are some areas of life that I had major disagreements and differences with them about growing up. Areas that had a significant impact on my life. Areas that we never fully agreed on. And to that, all I could say is this. So what? Like, so what, right? The Lord commanded me to honor my parents, and that has nothing to do with what they did or didn't do. Or what I agreed with or what I disagreed with. Command has nothing to do with whether or not they made it through this earth as perfect people. Because guess what? None of us is perfect. They weren't perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're not perfect. The commandment to honor your parents has nothing to do with whether or not they they did a perfect job. Because guess what? They did not do a perfect job. Your parents did not. My parents did not. And we as parents will not do a perfect job. There's one perfect parent. God himself. We're all doing our best but we don't make it through life perfect. So when you see a command like honor your parents, it has more to do with our obedience to God than, and, and, uh, and the lessons that he's been teaching us throughout the course of our life in all circumstances and the fact that we can just rest in his sovereign and providential guidance of our lives has nothing to do with whether or not the other people on the other end of that honoring have done everything perfect. They know they haven't. You know you haven't. This is about us honoring to the, being honoring to the Lord and submitting to what he's revealed. And so here you have Jesus confronting the Pharisees about their failure to honor their parents. And they came up with good excuses in their mind. They thought, you know what? We've got good excuses why we don't need to do this, why somehow we are exempt from honoring our parents. But the truth is, Jesus wasn't interested in their excuses. He also wasn't interested in any of the reasons they could give him for not keeping one of the most basic and obvious commands in all of Scripture. And what they were doing, so here you probably noticed this part right here, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. That would be a thing that they would say. You look at that, you're like, what does Corbin mean? Some of you thought of, anyone think of the name Corbin Burnson, right? You're thinking back to like, you know, the actor, right? Corbin Burnson, you know what the the word Corbin means? Um, It means a gift devoted to God. And so instead of taking care of their parents in their parents' elderly years, they would say, I'm really sorry, Mom, really sorry, Dad, can't help you out. I know, I know you're elderly and could use some help, but can't really help you out because we've devoted this, uh, these gifts that we have over to the Lord's work, however they thought they, that should be done. But then they would do that so that they would get the praise of their friends that would say, oh, you know, it's... It's so wonderful that you, you gave these gifts over to the Lord's work and, and all that. And meanwhile, Christ is saying, yeah, the most obvious thing you could have done was honor your father and your mother, and you chose not to do so. You said your gifts are Corbin, a gift devoted to God. And guess what? God wanted you to use them to bless your parents. Exodus twenty twelve, when you get the Ten Commandments right in that scripture, um, right in that chapter... It literally tells us, there's one commandment, by the way, that's got a promise. You can figure it out from the context of what we're talking about here, right? But if you want to win a trivia contest, if someone says, what commandment actually comes with a promise? 
There's only one commandment that comes with the promise, and the, the commandment that comes with the promise is honor your father and your mother. That's the one that comes with the promise. The other ones don't come with the promise. That one comes with the promise. And uh, so it's, it, it, and it literally tells us, let me, let me bring it up here for us. Exodus 20, 12 says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What's the promise that actually comes with it? It's literally telling us you will live longer if you honor your parents. You will live longer if you honor them. And by the way, you can honor them even after they passed away and just how you choose to speak of them. It's partly in caring for them when they're living and honoring them when they're living, but also in how you choose to speak of them once their, their time on earth is finished. And here's the thing, this idea that you'll actually live longer if you honor your parents, that's absolutely true in a variety of ways, but some of the ways are obvious, including the fact that parents, even unbelieving parents, can offer us wisdom that might save us from making some life-altering errors that they made during their younger years that they care enough about you to say, how about you not do that? How about you trust that I'm one generation ahead of you and I've lived a little bit more life than you, and if I'm telling you something, it obviously comes from experience, and I'm not just some older moron that doesn't know what I'm talking about. And how, how often, you know, do you find yourself saying, I hope, I hope my, I won't say which kid, I won't say which kid, I won't say which one, they're here right now, and uh, I remember saying to one of my kids, all right. To one of them, I said, I have shirts older than you. That's, I remember saying that at one point, and they reminded me of that. And then I remember saying to another one of them, I said, you know, here's the thing. I didn't spend all my life growing up so I could be an adult who takes orders from a teenager. That's what I, I remember saying at one point. I was like, do you really think I'm going to take orders from a teenager? Fat chance. I believe that's how I punctuated the sentence. And, um, and I look at that, but then I think back to myself, and I'm like, man, When I was at that stage, I was a pain. I was a pain. Like, my kids, I could tell them this now because they're adults. (laughs) They were way better than I was. Like, way, way better. I I think I've, like, given them a sanitized version of my childhood sometimes because I look at that, and sometimes I think of their worst stuff, and I'm like, yeah, no, that was pretty bad, but I, I went in way worse directions with my life. And I can tell you, like, when I think back over the course of my life, some of the things I regret are some of the things I said to my parents at a young age. I'm like, I wish I didn't say that. I have a lot more wisdom now at this season of life than I did at that season of life. And it's like, I wish I didn't do that, and I wish I didn't say that. So there were some apologies through, you know, through the years of like, yeah, remember when I said that? Very sorry about that, Mom. Very sorry about that, Dad. But the point here that Christ is actually really getting at as he's using that as a good example The greater point that Christ is trying to make in this moment was that our hearts should be devoted to the Lord, not distant from the Lord. Devoted to the Lord, not distant. We're called to genuinely trust Him in all circumstances and to live to give Him praise and to live to give Him glory, not seek the glory and praise of this world for ourselves. And that's what Jesus was confronting the Pharisees about. He was confronting them about these things because all they wanted was the praise of people. They didn't really care about what it looked like to honor the Lord. So what, what do we want to be remembered for, right? Let's, let's kind of uh, bring this together here and just think about this in an applicational way, because obviously the way we remember the Pharisees is not very warmly. It's not very, um, you know, we don't speak of them in, in kind terms. Here's what I've learned about human nature. We want credit for what we do. 
We want to be praised, and we want to be able to trust the efforts of our own hands. I think all three of those statements are very true. We want credit for what we do. We want to be praised, and we want to be able to trust the efforts of our own hands. And when I reference that retired teacher who gave his testimony of what he wanted to be remembered for, when I look at that, when I analyze the way he spoke and the words that he chose, I look at that and I think, that seems to be what he was banking on. I think that's what he was banking on. He wanted credit for what he did. He wanted to be praised. He wanted to be able to trust the effort of his own hands. And that's what most of humanity wrestles with as we go through life. And that's what the Pharisees were also counting on as they lived their lives. But here's the thing. God is not honored by our self-righteousness. Self-righteousness does not honor God. He is honored, however, when we humbly trust in him through his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the wonderful things about righteousness is that you can have righteousness, but it doesn't need to be self-righteousness. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ, the moment you stop trusting in the work of your hands or the praise you wanted to receive or the credit that you hope to get, the moment you stop trusting in those things and you humbly come to Christ and you trust him, you're given righteousness as a gift. And it's a better righteousness than anything you could ever conjure up. Scripture tells us that the righteousness of Christ is added to our account. It's imputed to us like it was our own righteousness. He gives us His, so that when the Father looks at us, He sees us as, yeah, that's one of my children who is righteous. Well, why does He look at us and say we're righteous? Because the righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has been added to our account the moment we trusted in Jesus. But the only way you would ever come to a spot where you would recognize your need for the righteousness of Christ is that the Holy Spirit has to help us get over ourselves. We have to humbly admit that we have a need. Now, this group of people, these Pharisees, came to Jesus not looking for him to meet a need. They just wanted to accuse him of things and get him out of the way because they wanted to call the shots. Most of humanity is exactly like the Pharisees. All of us in this room at one point or another have also followed in their steps. But the Lord's goal for you and for me is that we not spend the, the course of our days living that way or thinking that way. He wants us to understand the blessings and the benefits of just coming before him humbly and saying, Father, I have no righteousness of my own, but through your son, Jesus Christ, I know I can obtain his righteousness. I could be given it as a gift. I could trust in you. I could have confidence in the work that he's done on my behalf instead of seeking to accomplish work on my own behalf, thinking somehow that's going to earn your favor. We can come before the Lord and seek his intervention. We could seek the righteousness of Christ by faith, and the Lord delights to grant it to us. So when we wrestle with this idea of what we want to be remembered for, I'd encourage us to say, you know what, this is what I want to be remembered for. I want to be remembered as one who gave honor and glory and praise to Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's also okay if you don't remember me, as long as you remember him. A couple scriptures I want to finish up with. Speaking of the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Not our own glory, but to the glory of God. Whatever we do. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says this, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and not give you glory, but give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That even as you and I go about our lives seeking to live out our faith in Jesus Christ, 
that the, the idea isn't that we get glory for doing that, that the Father receives the glory. And then 2 Peter 3.18 says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter says, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to come together in a moment like this and look at what your word states. We're just so grateful, Father, for the fact that when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, we see people who were obviously living for their own glory. They were obviously living for their own praise. They didn't want to give you praise. They didn't want to honor you. They just wanted to live for themselves. And so here we are generations later, and that's what we remember them for. We remember them as people who just lived for themselves. That's what they did. That's what they chose. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. And there your son was, doing miracles right in front of their face, teaching right in front of them, talking to them directly, a blessing that I'm sure that all of us gathered would be interested in receiving. To be part of that generation, to be privileged with the opportunity to interact with your son during the course of his earthly ministry. And these leaders were given that privilege, and yet they looked at that and just kind of thumbed their nose at it. Father, I pray that as people who have the same sinful nature as those Pharisees, that we would look at these things and, and learn from it, that we would take some caution from things that Jesus quoted when he was referencing Isaiah's prophecies, speaking of people whose hearts were far away, people who made themselves look like they were pious and religious and devoted, but deep down were distant from you. Lord, we're not interested in just going through the motions. We want to have a genuine walk with you. We don't want to be people that, that live some sort of fake or phony life. We want to be people who, who honor you in all respects. And Lord, we know we need your help with that. We know that we don't make it through life perfectly. Even as we look at the portion of Scripture we just looked at and its references here to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments to honor our parents, none of us have honored our parents perfectly. And none of us as parents have done the job of parenting perfectly. It doesn't work that way. You are the perfect parent. So we, we're grateful, Lord, for your, your, your perfect fatherhood toward us. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that we would look at what your word says, that we would honor the parents that you've blessed us with, that we would learn the lessons that they are here to teach us, things that we're supposed to copy from them and things that we're supposed to do differently, but that we would learn just the same. And that we would say thank you to them, or to you for them, Lord. But again, Lord, we, we know that that's also a reminder and a catalyst that just because something's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And we see the Pharisees just saying, you know what, I know what your word says, but I feel like doing something different. And Father, I know how easy it is for my own heart to go in that direction, to look at your word and say, yeah, I see what it says, but here's what I would like to do. Father, you know that we wrestle with that. And so, Lord, we bring our hearts over to you. We pray that you would help us in humility to accept that your will is what should be done. And we're just so thankful for the privilege that it is to be able to think about these things right now. 
So, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for all that you've done on our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ, who took our sin and our shame upon himself at the cross so that through faith in your Son, we can be given the gift of righteousness. And that as you look at us, if our faith in your Son is genuine, you see righteous children. You don't see us for our sins. You see the righteousness of your Son in our account. Lord, I pray that that would be true of every one of us gathered here today. We're just so thankful, Lord, for your presence. We're so thankful for your love. Lord, thank you for these reminders today. We pray that they would never be far from our mind. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.